Hello, I'm Arafat. I'm in the UK. And I'm Mohammed, and I'm in the US. And you're listening to Slow Pit Stop. Hello, and welcome to our Mexican Grand Prix episode of Slow Pit Stop. Before I introduce my co-host and our guest for this week, I just wanted to talk to you all by myself for a few minutes because I've had some thoughts about the boycott that Verstappen's had with Sky. Obviously here we're biased. Mohammed and I are big Lewis Hamilton fans. Lewis was the reason I started watching Formula One in 2007 and why I ended up interning at McLaren all those years ago when he was there with Jensen. When asked about why Red Bull were boycotting Sky, Verstappen said, it had nothing to do with this weekend, but this year has been a constant kind of like digging and being disrespectful, especially from one particular person. Social media is a very toxic place, and if you're constantly being like that on live TV, you make it only worse instead of trying to make it better in the world. Red Bull will be back in Brazil speaking to Sky, but a lot has been made online about what Verstappen said. Some have said it's hypocritical, with a lot of whataboutism relating to comments that Red Bull or Verstappen have made in the past. Some have said right message, wrong messenger. Some have said the entire thing is a stunt to distract from further cost cap questions. Two images stick out in my mind this weekend from all the noise, were the Red Bull mechanics clapping for Lewis when he crossed the line, and Perez telling the crowd no when they were booing Lewis. Rivalries can be fierce, but why do they spill off track? I tried to reflect on my own relationship with F1. Why does it matter to me if Lewis wins? Why does it bother me if Verstappen wins? Does it matter to me who a driver is off track to enjoy watching them on track? I looked up an interesting article about what people get out of following sports. The following is from Daniel Wan, professor at Murray State University, who said, Being a sports fan is very psychologically healthy. Sports is a type of fandom and fandom connects us to other like-minded people and helps with a sense of belonging. People who identify as fans have higher levels of self-esteem and lower levels of loneliness and tend to be satisfied with their life. It's not that just the psychological benefit of watching your team win, there is a support network of like-minded people and losing helps you connect with these other individuals. Sometimes that sense of belonging is so important to someone's sense of identity that those outside the tribe are a threat. So, what do you identify as? An F1 fan? A Lewis fan? A Mercedes fan? As a teenager, seeing Lewis, a young British person who wasn't white, resonated with me. Seeing him speak now about racism and fighting the system still resonates with me. It's getting more common in my own life to encounter people who would prefer to see a real British doctor, which, you know, is code for a white doctor instead of me. Watching Lewis win gives me a real buzz. So why does it hurt that he isn't winning this season? It's obvious to me that I'm a Lewis fan before being a fan of McLaren or Mercedes or anything else. I really like the record he has of winning one race per season. With two races left, it looks like it's very unlikely he's going to be able to keep that record. But I don't think there's such a thing as the definitive GOAT. It's not about statistics or championship numbers. I think it's an emotional thing. Who was the driver that got you into the sport when you were young? When he retires, 
I think I'll be a fan of F1, but it won't. I won't be upset in the same way if a particular driver wins or loses. I'll probably just be supporting the underdog of that year. Verstappen spoke about social media being toxic. This is something most drivers have raised one way or another. What has social media changed that has made being a sports fan healthy to unhealthy? Being a fan was about enjoyment and having a social network or that support network around you. What's changed? I've got friends that are into Formula One and we chat about it all the time. Sometimes we make fun of each other, but we've been friends since we were kids and it's playful and respectful. Social media has given us access to so many new friends, like Adam, who will be on this week. But it's also given us access to strangers. The things that they say, why do they wind us up? Do we feel like we need to correct them? I think one of the problems is with my real friends, I've known them since they were little kids and I know them as a whole person. And so you care about them as a whole person. Whereas with randoms online, we dehumanise them. We see just an avatar or them being a member of a particular fandom and we don't see the whole person. So we say mean things. I mean, I know I'm guilty of it too. And what we see on social media drives our perception of someone, like Red Bull, Red Bull being the pantomime villain of Formula One. I think hoping everyone will be great on social media is unrealistic. I think you need to decide what do you want from social media and curate your timeline to reflect that. Every time I see someone say something I would argue against, I just block them now. I don't mean people who have a mildly different opinion to me. I mean people I think are out of line with derogatory comments and things. But yeah, blocking has been really good for me. I, I like to imagine that everyone I block is just still typing and shouting into the void, but no one's listening to them. There's friendly rivalry and there's bitter rivalry. And sometimes social media drives us to be much more bitter. We see things that shape our opinions of people and teams and they're usually negative. When we see the actual teams getting along, helping each other, clapping for each other. I mean, remember when Massa retired the first time and all those teams lined up on the track. Remember when the Williams garage was on fire and the other teams rushed to help and let them borrow equipment for the next race. Remember this year when Gasly was on fire and an Aston Martin mechanic was the first person on the scene. I think that side of Formula One is sometimes lost on us as fans. I think this boycott that Verstappen has chosen to go through is maybe a PR misstep. If he doesn't want to talk to Ted, that's fine, that's his right. But I don't think it's how he's going to stop online bullying or disrespect. I think of Vettel. He's much more respected now as a person than he was when he was dominating and that's because he's generated a lot of positive PR around him as a person not on a sort of cynical PR campaign but just by being genuine to who he is I think this boycott from Red Bull is probably drawing more attention to the things Max wants people to forget he's an extremely talented driver he will go down as one of the all-time greats and regardless of the statistics at the end of his career for some people he will always be the greatest I think you could have gone about this another way. And as for Sky, I don't really think they need to change. I mean, I don't watch a lot of it and some of it annoys me, but some of it's great. And I think that's good. They have a rotating list of pundits with varied opinions. And I think that's better than being bland and impartial for the sake of it. More voices, more opinions. That's how we learn. And I like that sometimes, you know, we have Jensen and then Johnny Herbert and... Um, Damon Hill and all these different voices and Naomi Schiff, all these different people giving us a different perspective. So some people will still annoy us and it's fine to disagree. 
Some people will be annoyed by us, like Karan Chandak, for example, not liking Muhammad. So, if you're listening, Karan, we've learned our lesson. Please, unblock Muhammad. Please unblock me, Karan. I, I chased you down the start, stop, pit straight, whatever. He wasn't even there. You just chased a random brown person. Then why did I hear a random brown person's voice on the speaker system? Because there's more than one Indian in the world than Karan Chandok. There's you and me as well. There's at least three of us. (laughs) There's at least three of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, Let's say hello to our guest this week. We're joined again by our, our favorite guest, Adam who you may as well just, you know, join the bill as co-host <laughs> the amount of times we have you on. But Adam is in Canada, and uh, as many of you will know, is a Honda fan and a Red Bull fan, and here to add some impartiality and balance to our podcast so that maybe Verstappen will stop boycotting us as well. Hi, Mohammed. <laughs> <laughs> That's our sign-on, as you know. Good to be back, guys. So sadly, uh, Adam is a bit under the weather at the minute, so we hope you feel better soon. Appreciate that. Everyone gets a turn on slow pit stop. Yeah, being unwell. Has to be the slow one. Just getting over it over the last two weeks. It's been rough. Yeah, but speaking of Karan Chanduk and Sky Sports, it turns out we're not the only ones that he has a problem with. People, Sky Sports is just, they're just controversial. Verstappen wasn't really happy, and I don't think, you know, I wouldn't be happy either if somebody questioned my greatest you know my greatest accomplishments winning a formula one championship and so he said i'm not going to do uh any sky stuff and then red bull backed him christian horner said we're not going to do any sky stuff as a team um and then that was apparently only for the mexican grand prix because they're going to be back in brazil but there's been a lot of heated talks about this verstappen said social media is toxic adam is our guest today he's our verstappen fan adam i know you have some feelings about the boycott How, how do you feel Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to offer a counterpoint there, because I do think that when Ted Kravitz specifically um, issues quotes like these, and it's it's definitely not a one-off, I think that the description by Max as it being constant is fairly accurate. I think almost any time you give Ted a platform, he has to throw in some kind of barb like this. And what I notice as someone who's fairly active on Twitter is that, you know, when he has a quote retreat, it, it is a springboard for people to be abusive on the internet. And I do think that he actually is a bit of a rabble rouser in that case. So, you know, I'm I'm in some ways maybe disappointed that the boycott's already ending because it doesn't really give it teeth. Um, But I definitely think it's something that that should be entertained um, by just folks who like sportsmanship writ large because, you know, I think that Sky is owned by Fox and it definitely has that same kind of um, sort of uh, attitude sometimes. And so... I think that, you know, Ted Kravitz, especially, he's sort of a Britain over anyone kind of nationalist person. And um, it's, you know, maybe I'm sure, you know, if I say to Arafat, you know, you watch Fox and you were to watch a commentator who is, you know, USA, USA kind of person, then you might finally, you know, recognize that that's something that you don't necessarily find that entertaining. Um, But yeah, I think the relentlessness is, is almost puerile at this point. Um, and his point has long since been made. And at this point, he's not, he's not making another intellectual contribution. He's just uh, fomenting uh, bad behavior by folks online. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd have to say that I'm disappointed that Sky hasn't looked into it more and said, hey, 
you know, Ted, your point has been made. Can we just go back to being entertaining? Yeah, folks can have biases. I don't mind if a commentator likes one particular team or driver a little bit more. Um, but I also don't find that to be particularly mandatory. So I watch uh, F1 TV. So I thankfully only get to hear about these kind of comments when I'm on Twitter. But I find that the F1 TV commentators, and especially the ex-racers like Julian Palmer and now um, James Hinchcliffe, are just ecstatic if there's excellent racing happening. And they, they almost don't care at all, whereas there's the opportunity for Julian to be very pro-Britain, but it doesn't doesn't really come out. He just wants the sport to be awesome, and there's such a joy to watch yeah. those no, two. My favorite thing about Sky is when they have ex-racers on. So Ted, you know, I think since he had a kid, has been alternating with current Chanduk. So Ted's not there all the time. And that, that's the point I think I was trying to make, that I think it's hard or you, you start on a slippery slope if you start to try and censor people, maybe. I don't know. Like you said, it, it's difficult because you want to get that balance. You don't want to foment bad behavior online. But at the same time, the thing that I do like about Sky is sometimes we'll have Jensen Button commentating. Sometimes we'll have Nico Rosberg. And rather than, like you said, just that same voice or perspective constantly i i would prefer to have 10 different voices and 10 different perspectives and just get a little different taste each time yeah i was gonna say a couple things one um for our listeners we have quite a doozy of an episode you can imagine we brought our red bull fan on because we're going to be talking about the cost cap but i told adam that you know we're not you know, this is real life you know we're real people we're not going to have the same you know, I, I guess interactions that people have on Twitter where I feel like Twitter is fake. So it's going to be a pretty respectful conversation and we have respectful conversations and we disagree on a lot of things. So it's definitely possible to get your opinion across, have it be different, but not do it in a way that is hurtful or toxic. In regards to Ted, he the only caveat I have with Ted is he was saying that on his own show, Ted's Notebook. And that's one of the things about like media in general. A lot of these commentators have their own shows or their own segments, and it's kind of their platform to say whatever they want. Um, now, whether or not that means that they have to continue to drive home a certain point, I don't know. And it, it is kind of like the Fox analogy where we have these people on Fox News and all they do is say the same exact thing. But you kind of, you, if you're going to listen to them, you, you kind of know what you're getting into. So I think Ted probably had the right to say what he wanted because it's his own show. I do, however, think Max absolutely was uh, had the right to, to say I'm going to boycott it. And I think that was the right move for Verstappen because we've said it on the show before. He didn't do anything wrong in Abu Dhabi. He just did what any other racing driver would have done in that case. In fact, if the situation was switched, Lewis would have done the same thing too. So he didn't really do anything wrong. All of our anger is at the the race director and the FIA. And even this year, Max hasn't done anything wrong this year. He's been an exceptional driver. Uh, so I, I definitely think he was well within his rights to boycott uh, or, or, or tr- attempt to boycott um, Sky. Uh, but I, I also do feel that Ted maybe has the right to speak his mind on his own show. Whether Sky wants to continue giving him his own show is a, is a whole other question. The other funny thing is, I want to ask Adam, do you feel like maybe Max intended this to be a much longer boycott, maybe indefinite? And then Christian Horner was like, okay, we'll give you a weekend, uh, but after that we're going to be back on the pit wall. Like, Yeah, I actually wonder if maybe he was given marching orders, to be honest with you. My, my, my impression was more that the team said, hey, Max, just so you know, we're doing a boycott now. I, I suspect that it wasn't his idea at all. That's my that's my intuition. Oh, okay. um, yeah, I, I, I feel like he, 
is probably doesn't care enough about the sky people to have been that bothered by it, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I do want to say, though, one of the things that I was planning to say, and, and you hit the nail on the head, is, you know, Red Bull is not the FIA, Max is not the FIA, Checo is not the FIA. You know, we're really upset about the way that the race was managed, perhaps in Abu Dhabi, about how the, the goalposts perhaps moved during the cost cap era, things like that. Um, and even if you do think that the team was dishonest, and I, I understand that perspective, if you think that the cost cap was deliberately and flagrantly violated, um, I feel differently, but, you know, I can understand that perspective. And then even in that case, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Red Bull employees, kids being bullied at, you know, at kindergarten and things like that. Um, and even, you know, drivers themselves, individual mechanics, um, really targeting those people is, is incredibly immature and inappropriate. So. Yeah, the thing I'll say about That's the cost cap stuff that. is, like, I, I don't know about your work, but like, I know what it's like to work for a big organization. And, you know, everything I do isn't always reflected by my organization. My organization might do good things, bad things. And I know 100% if the cost cap, like if Mercedes had broken it, I'd be standing here being like, there was nothing to do with Lewis. So I think it's, it's yeah. your, you know, I, I said it earlier about Red Bull being like pantomime villains on the internet. That's the way they're, they're portrayed on Twitter and things. And I sometimes, you know, like you said, these are real people doing a very, very good job. And we sort of project certain things onto them that are, that are unfair. And, and the thing that's annoying about the cost cap, I was thinking about this because whatever it is in Formula One, you know, people will always bend the rules. And when it comes to technical innovation, we're like, oh, that's really cool. The double diffuser, DAS, even this year, you know, the funny rear wing that Aston Martin came up with, we're like, well, technically the rule doesn't say specifically can't do that. We think that's cool, right? And mm -hmm. I, I quite like that sort of engineering competition stuff. What annoys me about the cost cap is like, one, I don't fully understand the accounting situation. And two, I don't tune into motor racing to watch accounting competitions of who can, yeah, sure. you know what I mean? The same level of engineering who yeah. can do, be as creative in accounting. And this is a like super aside. I once accidentally, um, you know, late night, like you get these weird sports that come on the TV. I once accidentally came across like this Excel championship, like Microsoft Excel championships. <laughs> on, it was on some like um, American sports channel. It was really Amazing. weird. But basically, that is what Formula One has become. And like you said, there's, <laughs> there's the annoyance that, one, I think it's really, really important. I think the, I think the cost cap is good because it helps teams like Haas and Alfa Romeo. And I think long-term, it will lead to greater competition. I think short-term, you know, when all the rules have suddenly changed, the top teams will have an advantage and whatever else. But 10 years from now, I think the cost cap is going to be something really, really important. But like you said, the, the goalpost kind of moved. And you do kind of, I don't know, on one level, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, this is unfair. And then you start going, well, what advantage could it have equaled in the long term? And then other people pointed out, well, yeah, like you said, you know, the goalpost moved, it probably wouldn't have had a competitive advantage. And then other people are like, well, is the punishment fair? Is it mm -hmm. not fair? My only thing about fairness is th this idea of it being a deterrent to other teams. And the sporting thing, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair or not fair because I don't understand 
aerodynamics. Yeah. Who was it? Was it Julian Palmer was saying some people think it's um, too lenient, some people think it's too harsh, which probably means they're Benson. kind of in the middle and it's about yeah. right. Oh, yeah, Andrew yeah. Benson was saying it's probably about right given that. Um, but the one thing that doesn't make sense to me, maybe you'll be able to explain it, is you know the seven million fine. It's outside mm-hmm. the cost cap because if mm-hmm. if I was in charge, I, I don't know how I'd make a sporting balance. But what I'd say is, if you overspend on the cost cap by X, the next year your team's budget will be reduced by two X, for example. So if you overspend by a million next year, your cost cap is reduced by two million. If you overspend ten million, then it's twenty million. I don't know that. To me, that just seems to make more sense than you have a monetary fine, but it's outside of. The budget yeah. does that make sense yeah 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 i agree with you it's it's super interesting because i i do think that there are some analogies to the engineering competition you're right because now folks are just because just the way they tried to find engineering loopholes to make sure they could have a competitive car or find something ingenious this is now count happening on the accounting side and, and i hope that that won't be the case prospectively the cost cap seems to be the right move the the change in regulations and the fact that there is a cost cap a lot of the midfield teams said during their uh, team principal interviews this week that they're really optimistic that in the years to come it will bunch up the field even more because of this cost cap so i'm I'm very encouraged by its existence Um, but just maybe we can also tell the fans and listeners what we mean by the moving goalposts too, just because we're going. Yeah, we, we skipped we over a lot. I was going to introduce the cost cap, and you guys just dove straight into it. But uh, yeah, Adam, <laughs> why don't you tell us? <laughs> Adam, why don't you tell us what he means by moving the goalposts? Yeah. So first of all, you know, in, indeed, introducing the cost cap. So things that apply to the cost cap um, relate to vehicle R and D and performance. So all this talk about catering and Adrian, Adrian Newey's salary and things like that, we can forget that part now that we have more details. And so the idea appeared to be that the initial cost cap regulations that were published allowed teams to write off spare parts. And as you will understand, uh, there was a lot of, you know, spare part manufacturing. It was quite a bit of carnage last year, um, in an exciting championship. And what happened is in June of the season, so fairways into the season, uh, they revised those cost cap regulations to say that if your spare parts are not applicable to next year's car, then you don't get that money off afterwards. And in a normal year, that would be most of those parts would be translatable. But unfortunately, because the regulations were about to have a dramatic change, this really hit Red Bull hard. Now, you know, as you've rightly pointed out, and I think many people have. Be that as it may, most teams, no other team went over. Some because there's some sort of gray area, perhaps with Aston Martin, and that's admittedly problematic. Um, and I think that my solution to this personally would be that um, the cost cap also shouldn't apply to repairs. Now, I, invariably, teams will try to find loopholes there where they'll sneak in some kind of upgrade under the guise of repair. You, I can imagine that's going to be very fraught. But at the same time, boy. You know, when your when your car you know flies off into the wall because your Pirelli tire explodes on the straight in Baku and you had no choice, or yeah, you who have pays for um, that? is it Pirelli? You know, is it your budget that gets tricky. Or did you so. underfill yeah, the air, the tire with air? <laughs> Deflate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
the um yeah, where Valtteri Bottas just crashes into both of your, yeah, your you team's cars on, on the first turn. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, certainly you can't do anything about that. I remember also, someone brought up the idea of do the teams have like a common insurance fund or something yeah. that repairs are, are taken from that or something. Yeah. Like like you said, like it's a separate pot up to a maximum. Like like I don't know, five million or something. I agree in principle. With what Adam's saying that, you know, the repairs shouldn't uh, count towards the cost cap. But mm-hmm. the only couple things I have to say about that is, one, we don't know how much repairs uh, uh, contributed to Red Bull's budget. I mean, you can look at the season as mm-hmm. a total. There, You know, there's people on Reddit that, like, try and do the math and they'll, like, put it together. I actually didn't see what the amount was according to them. But we, we don't know, like, how Red Bull took this $145 million and how they allocated the money. You know, because catering was part of it or, you know, they claimed it was part of it and they claimed that was what took them over. But it's a total budget. So mm-hmm. maybe, you know, they should have allocated more towards repairs and they didn't and less towards car development. We don't know that. The other sort of thing I have about this is that it feels like another excuse by Red Bull to justify going over the cost cap, which, as you stated, Adam, nobody else did because it started with, oh, it was Adrian Newest salary. And then we found out top three salaries are exempt. And then they said, oh, it's um, catering and it's it's uh, sick leave. And then we found out sick leave isn't included either. You know, and then we found out, oh, it's the tax credit that they were expecting, but they didn't get the tax credit, which I understand. Mm-hmm. But if you are spending in a way that, you know, you know that there's a chance I'm not going to get this tax credit, then you also need to know that there's a chance I'm going to break the cost cap. You know, like if I only have you know, $100, I, yeah. I, I pay taxes in the UK. So in theory, my taxes are going towards this credit that Red Bull has. So am I a shareholder in Red Bull? You are as of right now. Congratulations, Arafat. I'll take them down Excellent. from the inside. But if if you had, if I had a hundred dollars, you know, and I and you know I need to go Christmas gift shopping, for example, and I have a hundred dollars, and uh, I think okay, you know what? I have a hundred and twenty dollars worth of Christmas gifts, but one of these things has a mail-in rebate where they'll give me twenty dollars back when I buy it. But there's a chance I may not get that in time. Well, if I, okay, let's say I don't get it in time. I've now spent $20 that I don't have. It's just like, you know, it's basic. So I don't feel the the rebate to have been that strong of an excuse. And I, I just can't get over the fact that, you know, nine out of 10 teams got it right. Questionable with Aston Martin, but pretty much everyone else got it right. And in the year where every single dollar mattered in development in a very, very close championship, even if it's half a million over, let's say they got the rebate in those 400000 you can still hire two engineers with $400,000 with an American salary. I don't know what they what salaries they give in the but UK. But I think, you know, coming back to, like, the problems we had, like Adam was mentioning earlier, you know, with certain, like, Abu Dhabi not being Max's fault, I think this entire process seems to be so slow for some reason. Like, now, we were talking about last year. Mm-hmm. So if this yeah. was something that was happening live... And, you know, I, I think the responsibility is on the FIA. They're trying to police this. They're trying to make the team stick within the cost cap. I think they should yeah. say, you know, be doing these things, I don't know, month by month or something. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. maybe two, three months before the end, you are you can get a bit of a warning that, oh, actually, we're getting really close here. Uh, maybe we need to think about our finances as opposed to months and months later, you suddenly go, oh, actually, we didn't quite get that right. Um 
So yeah. I think it needs to be prospective. You know, I think I think everything about this has been screwed up by the FIA because A, they should have announced mm-hmm. it when the year ended. B, moving the goalposts in June was crazy stupid. C, waiting for uh, so long to even announce who broke the cost cap and didn't. I'm sure it's it's because Red Bull disagreed that they even broke the cost cap. But I don't know why there was a period allowed for negotiation, so to speak. I think the FIA should have just come out. And also, till now, we don't know exactly what Red Bull's breakdown was. As I was saying, that would clear up so many questions if we just knew. So the teams, all of them, agreed when they set up the cost cap, they agreed to financial confidentiality. Yeah. And they also agreed to this process of arbitration or, you know, we're calling it negotiation. All the teams agreed to this. So whatever Red Bull have done, mm-hmm. you know, after we found out they, they didn't stick to the cost cap, has been done within the framework and the rules yeah. that all the teams agreed to. Yeah, you can't and, blame Red Bull for like. No, I don't. I don't blame FIA Red Bull. I, I blame the FIA. That's what I was trying. That's the point I was trying to make. I blame them. And then also now with this, this actually the the penalty for it, which we haven't even gotten into the penalty. But I want to say something about all the teams having signed up for these rules. Sometimes all the teams can sign up for a rule that is bad. And I think the team should now look at the arbitration procedure and say that this is a bad procedure and we need to fix it for the years moving forward. And as an example, all the teams shouldn't be involved because they will always do things in their own self-interest. But who's going to hold the FIA accountable? No, no, but like, you know, this rule, like we're saying, this is silly. Like they've all agreed to it in case they were the one that broke the cost cap. Yeah. Like yeah, and, and because the cost cap is so new, there there's at least a chance it could have happened to anyone as they all look for their own right. Yeah, I mean, Joost Capito, uh, or no, Franz Tost said the same thing. He was like, you know, these are new regulations. Everyone was trying to find some kind of uh, accounting solution that would be the best for them, and it was prob- probably a matter of time till one somebody found out it didn't work. Should I tell you how I was going to fix no. F one? Okay, I yeah. forgot to tell you this okay. before we start recorded, but. Lots of people brought this idea up before, but I'm more certain it's the right thing now. So I think the FIA keeps coming across weak. You know, there's all this stuff about, oh, we need to get rid of two race directors and just have one. There's no consistency. Some rules seem overly punitive. Some seem too lenient, blah, 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 blah. I think get rid of all the suits and replace them all with Sebastian Vettel. He's respected (laughs) by most of the teams. He's a real nerd. He knows what's going on. And I, I think that would be the best thing. Well, I so think. you know what? Do you? I mean, did you listen? It sounds like Arfa, you listened to the last checkered flag episode because you mentioned what Andrew Benson said. But one of the things he said in that episode is that after the late Charlie Whiting passed away in 2019, his role kind of got split up across multiple roles. So and it got even more split up when Michael Massey was fired because Michael Massey was already doing two or wow. three roles in that. So now there's like nine people doing. So it's like hospital administration. Yeah. yeah, there's a dilution of responsibility. So there's no one person that has the authority to say, this is how we're doing it. But that's be- it's because they haven't found a replacement for Charlie. But I think you're right that Sebastian could be that replacement. Like, yeah, at this I think point, so. We he should has... start a hashtag. Patel for di- was yeah. race director, yeah. And I think he would actually be really good. The only trade-off will be that every single penalty that Mick Schumacher <laughs> deserves will somehow evaporate. <laughs> Otherwise, I suspect it will be good. But yeah, you know, I think that, you know, our gripes with the FIA is, is one place where we can find oh, yeah. definite harmony. Obviously, we're not going to squabble too much over our teams anyway, because I think that we're reasonable people. But one of the things I remember saying to you guys before or after the race at some point, but I said that 
essentially, you know, talking about this problem in October 2022 is utterly unacceptable. It's it's bringing back it's old mad. wounds. It's so mad. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it dramatically changes what the appropriate penalty even could be. I could have seen if this happened in the in the moment when it should have happened, like a two hundred point constructor deduction mm-hmm. or even or even a disqualification. Mm-hmm. You know, if we if we think that this is really if we think the minor breach is that big, but within the realm of possibility. But I, I think I said something like this is the accounting version of deleting somebody's Q one lap after mm-hmm. qualifying or deciding you should have waved the meatball flag hours after mm-hmm. the race. It's just it's just wild how languid how slow the FIA is on these crucial yeah. matters. Do you think the sporting penalty is required? Because to me, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm really missing something here, but I think if you break the financial penalty, you should just have your your cost cap reduced by like double that much, triple that much or whatever. Like financial crime, mm-hmm. financial penalty, sporting crime, sporting penalty. Does that make sense? I think that's that's something to no, consider. No, I disagree with sure. that, Arfa, because in Formula One, the finance the finances are so closely related to the sporting, and then not only and that, there's all the but... stuff about Ferrari being really upset because Christian Horner in his press conference said, you know, losing this much wind tunnel time will make will cost us like zero point two five seconds, but then Ferrari came out and yeah. said, well, actually, that time and money you can use elsewhere, you know, making the chassis mm-hmm. lighter, blah blah blah. And probably the penalty am- amounts to zero point zero five seconds. So Ferrari really upset that this adds up to nothing. That's all speculation. Everyone's going. But that's to exactly that's what, as like someone who knows nothing <laughs> about engineering. Yeah, I I have no idea who's right. <laughs> that's like oh, Adrian knew he had a bad breakfast. That that equates to zero point zero zero five. You know what? Are, what are these equivalencies? This saga and how long and protracted it's been unnecessarily has made me exhausted to the point of apathy yeah. to some to some yeah. extent. Uh, I, I think probably the answer is yes. You know, as a Red Bull fan, I'm, I'm trying to be as mm-hmm. objective as I can. Part of me feels like it could be harsh because development time is already low and, and Red Bull leading means they already have the least wind tunnel time. Um, but I think given how long after the fact that this has arisen and Perhaps the the inelegant way that Red Bull handled it, trying to find different excuses that weren't accurate, instead of saying, "Look, we tried loopholes like everybody else, but turns out ours were the ours were not legitimate," would have been a better way. So I I think on balance, if we if we accept that they flip flopped a lot and didn't have a consistent explanation as to what happened, um, probably this is adequate and deserved. My only worry is, like you said, you know, things dragging on. Like I just want to kind of forget about it. And my worry is, we're gonna. Yeah wait now till 2024 and sit and look at the lap times and be like okay what is red bull's lap time do we think that penalty was fair or not like what do we expect do, yeah. is it fair if red bull are still in first place is it fair yeah. is the fair thing to drag red bull back to the third fastest car what, like what does any of that mean yeah. whereas that's why i think you know the financial thing if we can just be like you overspent by 1.8 million next year your budget's reduced yeah. by like four million. End of story. Let's move on, but because that that four million, yeah, won't hurt. it would be. But the four million would be a good sporting penalty, because you can do you can make less parts, you can do less whatever else. Oh, like out of the out of the cost cap, out itself, of their budget. Know? Yeah, that's what oh, I'm saying. Okay. Not like because yeah. that's my problem right now. The seven million fine is outside of their their budget. Yeah, uh, the cost cap budget. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Just reduce their budget next time. Oh, I see. My. 
I, I really hope that we move past this because I think that partly why we're so hung up on it is because there are millions of new fans in Formula One who are unaccustomed to this. Because I think that you look at most seasons in Formula One, or maybe I'm exaggerating, but let's say a, a great number of seasons, you have some pretty flashy, exciting infractions, and then FIA mm-hmm. strikes them down. And uh, I think new viewers aren't used to seeing that, whereas the rest of us, we go, gosh, that Ferrari yeah. in 2019 was pretty yeah. awesome, or that DAS on the Mercedes is pretty cool, but you know, whatever, people try. This is It's part of the game. It's arguably the more exciting yeah. part when you have yeah. racers who are all equivalently amazing at some point. Strategy and engineering is where the battle yeah. is happening. Yeah, I agree happening. with you because, you know, sorry, I was going to say that, you know, like last year there was the whole flexi wings, flexi, or was that this year? I don't remember. But whatever year. Every single flexi- year. Every, well, I can't <laughs> yeah. remember a year where I've not heard about a front wing flexing. So I was gonna say yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Last last year was wing. This time was floor. But it's not even the first time there's been a flexi yeah. floor that was popular a little while back too. The Bye reaction game. on social media tended to be people shocked that teams were coming up with like or accusing other teams of breaking the rules. Whereas teams accusing other teams of breaking the rules is part of Formula One. Like that is yeah. a part it's of the part DNA. Of the drama of the and yeah, it sells. But speaking of th- like flexi wings and things that like hit rock bottom and then bounce back up again, should we talk about Daniel Ricciardo yeah. quickly? <laughs> sure. I knew I knew <laughs> I was breaking up with some so Daniel. Yeah, I guess I guess we're we're done with the penalty. Um, yeah, he so had a good race. He had a really good race. He had a 10 second penalty for smashing into Yuki Sonoda for no apparent re- reason, ending his race. I feel then, so bad for Yuki. You know, like in Silverstone, people yeah. say that you shouldn't be able to crash into someone, end their race, and then finish higher than them. That's exactly what Daniel did. (laughs) Crashed into Yuki. (laughs) And then finished higher than everyone else. (laughs) Exactly. And then somehow made his way up to seventh and then built a 10-second lead to Esteban so he got to keep his position. It's just incredible. But it it was like the flash of brilliance that we've seen from him. The the reason I wanted to bring up Daniel Ricciardo is I wanted to talk about where do you think he's going to be next year because on Sky he came out and said, I'm not going to be on the grid next year. He's, he was very honest and open about mm-hmm. this. He said, I'm not going to be on the grid next year. You will see me around, but I think I just need to take a break and then come back for 2024. So yeah, basically today, like Nick Mercedes has two drivers, reserve drivers, right? Nick DeVries and Stoffel Van Duren. Nick DeVries is going to AlphaTauri and Stoffel's just been announced as going to Aston. So there's a nice little vacuum there. And, you know, um, nice. Toto Wolf has been walking around in Daniel Ricciardo mm-hmm. merch with, like, his hoodie on and things like that. So I think Daniel Ricciardo's headed to Mercedes. But there's a bit of me that wonders, would he be better as a test driver at Red Bull? Yeah, that's the competing rumor. Those are the two yeah. I've heard Like, as well. what, what do you think would be better for him? If you were his manager, where would you put him, Adam? Yeah, um, if I was his manager and I really had both choices, I think I would go with Red Bull because that is the car in which he's demonstrably good. Now it's barely the same car, you, you might opine. And maybe I think Max and Lewis both have the attribute of being so amazing that they obliterate their teammates' psyches <laughs> forever. So I think that that could be a problem too. Um, so I think in, in if there are no external factors, then that's what I would say for him to do. But the reason why I'm going to say I hope he ends up at Mercedes is because I don't think that Helmut Marco ever forgives and forgets. <laughs> and I, and I, think that, um, I think that if he was waiting in the wings there, even if Sergio started to fall off, which it kind of looks like he might, I don't think that he would get the nod 
from Helmet, who has very strong opinions and probably feels as though he was he's been slighted from uh, from being walked away from. Yeah. So I think, to me, on one level, the Red Bull thing makes sense because I don't see a vacancy coming up at Mercedes anytime soon. So the hope would be that he would take Perez's seat in 2024. But I think if he went there, he would end up in like test driver limbo like um, Sebastian Boemi was with Red Bull. No, I don't think that's going to... This is what I think is going to happen. I think we'll see Daniel Ricciardo in Alfa Romeo in 2024. And he, and here's why. Whatever role he takes next <laughs> year is temporary. I think Red Bull is the, better, is the better role because if he goes to Mercedes... He's not going to do anything. When was the last time Mercedes called in a reserve driver? In yeah, fact, but Toto make sure his reserve drivers end up somewhere. Like he, he he called it a soft landing. He made sure Valtteri had a soft landing. Oh. He made sure Stoffel got put in McLaren. He made sure Ocon got put in Renault. So I think Toto would put him in the Alpha. Yeah. So I think he'll go to Alfa Romeo, and I think I think they're not going to keep Guan Yu Zhou for for very long. He's been good this year, but I, he's, he's been already really good. A, he's already I think been it's a Valtteri that he would displace. It depends who you, how much money Guan Yu Zhou is bringing. That's, that's just not clear. If he has mega China no. money. But I think Zhou, if you look at it, in the first half of the season, you know, Valtteri was obviously doing much better than him. Yeah. Second half of the season, he's so much closer. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. Zhou has the potential to keep getting faster and faster. So by 2024, he could easily yeah. be the fastest driver in that team. Yeah. So I think it's Valtteri that's probably approaching the end of his career. Yeah. And that's the hope. I mean, Alfa Romeo slash Audi would be well within their right to say, actually, we want this exciting new talent from F2 yeah, exactly. instead or mm-hmm. someone else. But the hope for Ricardo would it be, I Alfa. think, that Valtteri retires and he takes well, that I'm role. A, I'm not a huge Joe enthusiast, mm. and this can maybe lead into our next transition, which is that you should never give no. a driver a seat that hasn't won F2. Okay. And that transitions us into Logan so Sargent. So Adam is going to channel his <laughs> inner Canadian and hate on America for a sec. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, I, I don't hate America. I, mean, I, was, I was talking about oh, James yeah, Hinchcliffe being that. a commentator. And he's actually from Oakville, Ontario, but he clearly has mostly an American accent after being in, you know, formula, I mean, yeah. in Indy forever and hanging out there. You, I can actually tell which, which words he says as a Canadian, which words he says as an American accent. <laughs> and I hated it at first. I was like, why is this American accent on my F1 commentary? <laughs> but, but then his insider understanding of, of racecraft mm-hmm. was so good that I couldn't possibly hold it against him anymore. I hope you have the pleasure. I'll give you my F1 TV <laughs> login. It's just, it's actually such a joy to That's hear really, from That's really because you know really I really really it. like Jolien Palmer. Like I feel like he's got that same. So yeah. if they've got yeah, two Jolien's people, the best, like, I think. Yeah. Oh God, he's so enthusiastic too. Like he just has these things he always does. Where he's just like, ah, oh, it's sensational racing, and he just like gets so excited. And <clears throat> he does that thing always where he's like, he's just got him in the corner. Like he yeah. he just is so excited about the races like he's back in the cockpit when he's when he's commentating and james isn't quite like that but he he's clearly he's a humongous nerd he's clearly watched and rewatched races mm-hmm. from well before he was mm-hmm. a commentator and yeah. anyway all of which is to say not all <laughs> americans are created equal and we have logan Sargent here who is apparently an avowed anti-vaxxer avowed anti-vaxxer and trump supporter and who's got i don't know some handful of wins to his name in so- f2 and yeah, so, my question, you know, earlier yeah, where right. I was talking about when I was doing my, like, long, like, bad guy, yeah, yeah. what's it called? Solo- soliloquy. Yeah, yeah. Sil- 
monologue, monologue. that's it. Back <laughs> so earlier when I was doing my monologue. Um, <laughs> and, you know, should, can we separate the who the driver is off track? Because, you know, we all like that Lewis Hamilton is able to speak about racism and all these sort of things. Yeah. But, you know, and we, you know, keep politics out of sports. But actually, you need to allow people to express the other stuff like if someone came out here and was like i don't believe in free healthcare, um i i think we should abolish the nhs in theory they should be free to say those things but like adam says i didn't know anything about this guy but because you said those things you know he's a trump supporter anti-vaxxer i've instantly disliked him as well and i'm trying to square <laughs> in my head because i dislike him does that mean he shouldn't be there or i'm like well you're here now and i want albin to destroy you yeah, gosh. I mean, I, I have to say I had considerable schadenfreude when he didn't finish enough of FP2 or 1 or whatever it was to get a super <laughs> yeah. late point. So, so if people don't know, if people don't know, he he needs like a certain amount of points, Logan Sargent, to get his feet in Williams because he literally doesn't have a super license yet. And uh, you get a point for being an FP1 as a rookie, and he didn't get the point in Mexico because he DNF'd four kilometers before he would have been eligible, which is just so funny. Like, that is just absolutely hilarious. I'm going to say goodbye to people, uh, and Adam is going to be our own personal Nico Hulkenberg uh, and super sub for me. Uh, and actually, I'm looking forward to hearing the episode uh, as a listener for once. So thank you, everyone, and I'll see you later. All right, guys, Arfat is gone. This is now the Adam and Muhammad show. We've taken over. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, yeah, so so I guess this is the perfect time because now we've got yeah. Adam on to talk about our next topic, which is this new era of Formula One. And so it, this has basically been the question that everyone has been asking. Are we entering an era yeah. of Red Bull domination where you've got an incredible driver like Max Verstappen behind a really good car? That's the kind of combination yeah. that takes Michael Schumacher on to win five championships or Lewis Hamilton to win six in a row. So, I don't know. Yeah. Adam, you're a Red Bull fan. You're going to be hard on your team. But uh, w- w- how do you think? Yeah, I, I will be. You're right. So, I think that – so, first of all, my my answer is hopefully not, but also I, I think okay. not. And the reason why I would say that is because I think that that's specifically what the regulations mm-hmm. have been designed for. So with ground effect and cost cap, my understanding is that the idea is you'll never have a runaway success like that in terms of construction. So, you know, I just mentioned Joseph Newgarden and how he's a double Indy champion and, and why mm-hmm. doesn't he go to F1? He's actually given interviews where he said, uh, it's not as appealing as it used to be for me because I think that F1 is a is a constructor championship, not a driver mm-hmm. championship. Maybe he'll feel differently now that he sees the new regs. But <clears throat> he used to throw considerable shade in saying that, you know, whoever has the best car does the best. And a lot of Formula One drivers feel like that, yeah. too. So I, I get the impression, you know, especially with, you know, decreased wind tunnel time for the leading team mm-hmm. and these cost caps. We, we have to remember that we've seen we've seen, uh, you know, great competition between Ferrari mm-hmm. and Red Bull. So one or two races like Austria and Australia where there was no competition, you know, and uh, and uh, Charles had to pitch himself off track for yeah. it to even be, you know, suddenly Max's race again. And, and we forget that very mm-hmm. quickly. I think sports fans just have short memories regardless. But hopefully that doesn't mean it will be a blowout because the teams will well, be okay, closer. Okay, let me ask you this, because I didn't watch Formula 1 in... 2017 or 18 so 
the Ferrari challenge yes. to Mercedes. That's what I want to ask you about. Was yeah. people say this, but I, I didn't watch. Do you think in the beginning of the year, the Ferrari in those years was faster than the Mercedes or no? That's a good question. Um, I think probably okay. not. Um, there were probably, there were certain tracks that suited them. Um, but I think that there was, there were flashes of Seb Vettel brilliance there where he really pushed that car. You could see the difference between him running the car and Raikkonen, which made that very, very clear. Um, and yeah, I think that eventually because that era was cost capless, Mercedes could throw in just countless yeah. sums of money at the problem. And then it wasn't an issue anymore. And now that can't happen. So, but still, I mean, obviously there are engineering leaps and bounds because we went from having a close fight to Red Bull really figuring it out over the summer break and pulling out a considerable yeah. advantage. And fair play to them, honestly, because I think even we speculated on this podcast that once the flexi floor is reduced, Red Bull is going to fall back. But instead, as we would expect and hope from this sport, the engineers got to work. Um, and I guess the other thing that will be very interesting to see for next year is I think that we can now see that Red Bull's strategy is superior. So we talked on a previous podcast that I was on that Mercedes and Red Bull are essentially flawless. And so Ferrari is compared mm -hmm. against that and it's not fair to them. But now I think if we're being honest, especially last race, but perhaps also uh, Netherlands, um, Red Bull strategy was also superior to Mercedes strategy. So that's something that will probably be hammered out as the uh, as tire performance changes. You know, we're about to have new tires again and everything's going to go topsy-turvy. But yeah, I think that I am, um, I mean, quite bullish for my team. I'm, I'm worried because of the loss of, because of these penalties and the loss of wind tunnel time that'll get close. Because um, you're right. I think, you know, you can probably relate to this as a Mercedes fan. It is kind of fun to see your team totally dominate. I don't want to stress over my mm -hmm. Red Bulls every every season but i'm much more interested in having competitive sport and especially if it's fair and folks you know really learn to work with the cost cap and work with the regs so i don't think it's going to be a blowout that would be kind of fun i'd love to see max set new records but i think it's going to be closer than ever next year if i was yeah thinking. i there's a couple of things we'll talk about the mexican grand prix itself which is the topic of this episode we'll talk about that later but i i do kind of see what you, I, I agree with you i think that Mercedes in their eras of domination teams got close it's not like nobody could ever get close but it was once there was a cost cap or because there was no cost cap Mercedes could afford to outspend them and kind of develop around the problem whereas I, I do think it's possible for these teams to get close and my question I was going to pose it to Arfa but I'll ask you Adam if the season started where Mercedes is now so if the season started and Mercedes was at the deficit to Red Bull that it is now would you then say that by the end of the season, the two teams would be very similar in pace? I suspect that the answer is yes, but it's a tricky question because I think that we've been looking at a couple of circuits where there's an illusion that they're closer mm -hmm. than they are. So I think, you know, Mexico, especially you have this high altitude, you know, high downforce circuit made it look like they were a bit closer mm -hmm. than they really are. I think if we go out, I don't know what we'll see going forward, but there certainly are, you know, second half of the season tracks where Mercedes mm -hmm. was nowhere to be found relative to Red Bull. Certainly they've improved. Certainly they're not going to be lapped again. Like that was astonishing to see. But I think we have Andrew Shovlin and the guys at Mercedes saying, zero side pods didn't work you're going to see a dramatically different w14 um and so yeah 
it would have been closer, but I don't think we would have seen a genuine competition. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree. I think, you know, I, I it's tough to say how next year will go, but I do think Mercedes has made a, a giant step forward, and I think going into, into development. So one of the things I was going to tell our listeners is um, some of the low-hanging fruit, like weight reduction and fixing some of the drag issues, those were all ironed out by other teams over the summer break. Like I know uh, Red Bull was working on weight reduction throughout the year. Mercedes didn't touch it because they didn't have the time as they were working out more fundamental issues. So they still have these low-hanging fruit to make their car faster um, that the other teams don't necessarily have. So I, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful if you're a Mercedes fan for the future. Um, and I certainly think, I really hope it's going to be close. If we get what we had in the first half of the season between all three teams, that's what everyone wants. And, and I'm really hopeful for that. Uh, but let's, let's get into the Mexican Grand Prix. So obviously Red Bull kept the lead at the start, which was amazing uh, because that was, I think, where our best chance at winning the race was. But then there's this whole conversation about the hards and the mediums. Uh, Adam, have you looked into some of the data behind the mediums? Do you think that had Mercedes been on the, the mediums, they would have prospered? Well, they did start yeah. on the mediums, right? So that was part of the issue. Um, but the question is, should they mm-hmm. have persisted? Um, yeah, I I think so. I mean, I think that you heard both drivers talking about how the hard wasn't the right tire and the data do seem to support that. Hmm. Um, and Lewis in the post-race interview thought that he was already discouraged when the tire blankets came off and they weren't on mm-hmm. the used softs everybody else had been using mm-hmm. for qualifying. So I think that might have been the first mistake. Um, so... Yeah, I think this is what I'm trying to say about uh, strategy being superior potentially at at, uh, at Red Bull at the moment. They, they seem to have multiple edges. It's not just any one thing. It isn't that Max is in his prime and possibly the best on the grid right now. It's not just the straight line speed of the Honda power unit because there are plenty of deficiencies there. It's it's a beautiful thing in some ways to say that the sport is really a sum of all of these moving parts. And the reason why you come out on top is because of those. Because we're not seeing people win by country miles anymore. You know, we, we see occasional max domination, but, you know, the, the time deltas that we used to see Lewis win by are, are, are seem to be a thing of the past. So yeah. it really is very nice to, to see that as it's some of all these parts. Um, and so I guess that also brings us to this, what we were discussing, which is that this is now the second race where Russell has tried to call his own yeah. strategy. Um, and, and again, it seems as though much like when science tries to do it. And it's a testament to, you know, being a multifaceted race race car driver that you can think of these things. He might've been right. I think it would have been really fascinating to see Russell try to hang out his tires. And he, he might've degraded like nobody's mm. business on those final laps. It might've been insane, but it certainly was a better alternative than, than what my favorite part about with. that is Russell saying, I've run over debris. I've got a puncture. I'm coming in. And then the team saying, stay out, stay out, stay out. We know you're lying, but I, I respect the hustle of coming up with an excuse to try and yeah. come in. Um, I, I do think that, I don't know. It's I'm happy with Mercedes for uh, risking it. People have made this, uh, you know, people always were afraid that, not afraid, they always complained that Mercedes never took any risks with their strategy and they always played it safe. And people were saying online that they played it safe with the hards. I really don't think they played it safe with the hards. I think the the obvious move or whatever was to go on the medium. And I think that they went with the mm-hmm. hards hoping for a tire deficit. And I'm happy that they took a risk because that's the only yeah. way. Red Bull strategy is so, so good. I You said there's no one thing. I honestly think that Red Bull strategy is one of their defining features. They're just so good at it. And I think Mercedes is going to really yeah. have to work on 
strategy and their pit stops because it's ridiculous that we have more than three second pit stops, you know, continuously. So I, I, I do think, yeah, yeah I, I do point. think, I don't that's think Lewis point. was going to win. I really want him to win. A lot of people say that he could have won. You know, uh, Mattia Bonato was saying that he could have won. I really don't think he could have won. But it was nice to see him fight. And I want to remind our fans who are probably heartbroken after that, that uh, it's we were in a position earlier this year where Lewis was stuck in Q1 and, you know, struggling to get out of Q2. Mm-hmm. So to have podiums again, to finish P2, I think, I don't know, for me, and to have the hope of a win, to me, that is like a huge step forward. Obviously, I would have want, wanted him to win a race. But like Arafat said in his opening soliloquy, villain soliloquy, um, Sometimes, you know, the records don't really matter and, and you look at the amazing driver behind it and, and that's kind of what we have with Lewis. Um, that's all we have for our episode. We've gone a little bit over time. Arafat had to leave. That's how over time we went. Uh, but I want to thank Adam once again for coming on. Uh, we only have a couple episodes left for this season. Uh, so we hope you guys can stick with us through the end of the season. Then we'll be doing some stuff off season as well. That'll be fun. But thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. Uh, goodbye. This has been a production for Not That Good Media.